I'm Jeff Gibson. And I'm Shanna Paxton. And we are the, the Movie, Movie Lovers. Lovers. Welcome Hello. to the official podcast of the Gibson Review. In every episode, we talk about our week in review, which is what TV shows or movies we've been watching since the last episode. Move on to our main event, which is a main review or topic of discussion. And then we finish it off with film faves. Our favorite movies of um, a particular topic. Either a a year-by-year countdown or a particular theme. Like last episode, we did Tom Cruise movies. In this episode, for the first time in, I don't know, maybe ever, we will not have a main event, main review. But we will talk about what led to that happening. (laughs) For those of you who listened to the last episode, have some inside knowledge about where we are at. Uh, but we'll have uh, Film Faves 1994, which is arguably um, one of the best years of the 90s. So that should be a lot of fun to dive into. But first, our week in review. Shanna, it sounds like you've been watching some cooking shows, yeah? Yes, I have been watching cooking shows. This turns out to be the best channel to leave on when we leave our dog at home alone that'd be the food network yeah the food network is a very good network to leave your dog with they're going to be in good hands because they get to hear food cook and they get to hear some really soothing voices actually so one of those examples would be pioneer woman lee drummond she is a she calls herself i guess an i think she calls herself an accidental farm girl Mm. i think she just fell into that life Mm. and she is a photographer she's a cook obviously and watching her show has been really fun and soothing one of the episodes she has a purpose to each episode i guess everybody does but i really understand her purpose per episode so one episode that i watched that i was particularly fond of was okay what do you bring a new mom food wise and she talks about how listen moms don't have time to prep anything they don't have time to even shove food in their mouths so she had these different solutions where you know okay we're going to make her a fruit salad it's not just going to be fruit cut up it's going to have a few more extra sugars in it because we're going to because we're going to make a little sauce and the extra calories will help the mom, you know, get through the rest of the day. And then she talks about how, okay, now we're going to make these nut clusters, which get stored in the fridge and they're easy to pop into your mouth. And then she'll talk about how to cook a roast and making sure that you have vegetables in there and potatoes so that there's little nibs to eat. So just, it's really, I know I'm going on about this, but it's really practical and she makes it look really easy. And then she'll have an episode where it's like, okay, make a head stuff that only takes 15 minutes to reheat. And those are really helpful things. And the way she goes about filming it and her stylings and stuff are really helpful and pleasing to look at. And her voice is really soothing too. So so I've been enjoying that. Pioneer Woman actually has nothing to do with the theme of the show or what she's cooking. Well, what does pioneer mean? Well, when I think pioneer, I think someone who's traveling west and gonna settle, uh, settle new land, and well, so she you know, lives living on... simply or okay. off the land, oh. and you know, hmm. very western like 
Uh, Unless that is, well, it is pretty Western because they're on a farm. Okay. So it's very country. Okay. Um, so I guess that's where it's coming from. Okay. So I don't know how much they're taking off of their land to cook yeah, yeah, yeah. with. I don't know. But that definitely plays a factor in, in the episodes. Yeah, Western stuff. I mean, like mm-hmm. there was one episode where it was breakfast for a cowboy. Or okay, gotcha. I think she said rancher. Gotcha. I think is the, the term she uses. And it was like heavy cinnamon rolls <laughs> that looked really freaking good. And mm. she like has a really good way of telling little stories as she's cooking. Oh. So it keeps you really interested. So she'll talk about how her husband loves these cinnamon rolls and that he eats them practically every day. Mm. And that's okay because he's working it all off oh, while he's yeah. doing ranch work. So, gotcha. Gotcha. So it's always entertaining and i know that lady likes it our dog yeah so very good very good well for my weekend review i have quite a few things to to talk about i don't know how i squeezed in the time but let's start with 2017's the greatest showman which about this time last year the trailer came out. I was actually really interested in it. But then when it came out in December of last year, it was met with poor to mixed reviews. And so I put it on the back burner. I was kind of interested. For whatever reason, it took eight months for me to get around to seeing it. So I finally did see it. So, and I should say, those who don't know, it is Hugh Jackman's uh, musical. Uh, he didn't direct it or anything. But he stars as P.T. Barnum. It's basically about Barnum and his circus and his uh, freak show previous to having a circus and all that sort of stuff. I will say that there are a couple really catchy foot-stomping songs. It has a really great opening number that's really dazzling and catchy. And then, of course, the song that got all the attention was called This Is Me. That's a really good performance piece. The choreography in the film and all the musical numbers are really great. They're dazzling. They are by Ashley Wallen, who is a guy who choreographs such concert tours as uh, Kylie Minogue's Kiss Me Once tour. Fairly recent. He's been around for a while, though. Uh, So Jackman himself is really charming. He's bringing clearly to the screen his theater experience, being big, showy, and charming and even Zendaya who we first I think I don't know about you but for me I first got exposed to her through Spider-Man Homecoming she kind of shows in this movie while she's not given a lot of acting opportunity she does have a screen presence and that I think will do her well in the future but the problem is it's all surface while watching the film a lot of the times I kept thinking of like this is like a Vegas show where it's like dazzling and entertaining, but there's really not much there. There's not really much to it. The film pretty much starts off with him and his youth and adolescence, and within two minutes of meeting the character, he's off singing a song. And I felt like, oh boy, like it's almost like in an action film, two minutes after meeting the character, he's all of a sudden like in some sort of an action scene, and you're like, well, why do I care about what happens? You know, you don't get to know the character first. And, you know, there's a lot of things like that. The character development is very minimal. Sometimes it's about as deep as this character is fat. She has a beard, but she seems really well, so we really like her. 
there's really not much beyond that outside of the Barnum character. There's these, this, this cast of, like, quote-unquote freaks that Barnum recruits. You don't know most of them, really. And it kept, I kept wondering, like, who's that person in white? What do they do? Who's that black woman? What do they do? Who's that person dressed in gold? What do they do? It was almost like, imagine, like, an X-Men movie where you have a cast of these characters, you know, who do different things. But you actually don't know what they do or who they are, you know? Well, and it sounds like there isn't any establishment before this film to allow you to know about the characters and what they do. Not much. Whereas with X-Men, you know, if you are a fan, you're going to know a little bit about each character. Oh, I guess. I mean, the, the the one parallel to what you're saying is, like, if you know history, you know, oh, these people... But even then, like, most of their names are changed for inexplicable reasons. And to that point, Zac Efron has a character who's essentially Bailey of Barnum and Bailey's Circus. But for some reason, his character's name is completely changed. You know, and also they have this really useless subplot with him falling in love with Zendaya. That doesn't really work. I I didn't believe or have any understanding why he suddenly fell in love with her. But it's to whole... You know, she's, she's, she's black or of some um, minority ethnicity, which would not have been okay in the 1800s for him to have had a relationship. So they wanted to play with that. Did not happen historically. And that's another problem with the film is the historical inaccuracies are insane. There's so many nuances and, and aspects to Barnum himself and his life they could have really run with this whole like theme of accepting people for who they are by actually using events of his actual life and the movie's just not interested in being that interesting uh, which i shouldn't be re- surprised by because the script is written by jenny bix who wrote what a girl wants and rio 2 not a great pedigree the film also is directed by a first-time director who's a, a previously a music video director. So that should make sense in terms of it being very all superficial, smoke and mirrors, very little else to it. Actresses like Michelle Williams and Rebecca Ferguson, who I think are great actresses, are completely wasted also, given very little to do. Oh, and also to add to the phoniness, there are people whose voices aren't there real voices in this movie? <gasps> That's not good. Right? That's so, like, good, Rebecca no. Ferguson's singing voice completely replaced, and you kind of feel it. And there's a character who's, like, Tom Thumb, and I'm kind of like, is that a kid or is that a little person? I can't tell. I, I hear him talk, and I'm like, that almost feels like a dubbed voice. And it is a dubbed voice. It's not, you know, they didn't find an actual dwarf or little person well, and cast weird. them. They cast a child and dubbed the child's voice. So why did know. they it do it? Feels so phony. it's there's a lot of phoniness happening. Yeah, yeah, and multiple layers. And if you'd seen my mini review on Facebook, I had capped it off by saying that perhaps this is the brilliance of the whole film, and the fact that Barnum was a guy who created things that weren't real and tricked his audiences and, and you know he was full of phony tricks and, and things so and maybe it's maybe a the commentary movie <laughs> is actually playing on that by being you know all dazzling and and stuff uh, but when you think about it you realize how much you just actually got tricked 
But I, I, I think that would be giving the film way too much credit. <laughs> yes. At any rate, so that's The Greatest Showman. So I have a question. Oh, yes. You yeah. know, with some musicals, they're this huge hit, and some musicals are just a complete flop. Right. So what is another example of a complete flop of a musical, and how would you... What what is an example of its polar opposite, where it was just really authentic and mm-hmm. really, just really good? Okay. And another question: Yeah, does length affect character development? Because you have something like Sound of Music or Singing in the Rain. Yeah, it's like oh, I swear it's almost like three hours. Maybe it's two and a half. Yeah, and yeah. that's pretty good. I mean, that's right. my gold standard. Right, right. So okay, so there's a few questions there. First of all. I would say Moulin Rouge is a great counterpoint to this film where you have um, a dazzling musical with a cast of oddball characters. I actually felt like I got to know and care about the cast of oddball characters in that film, and that film works extremely well. And it even has more memorable songs, even though they're pop music and it's been rearranged, so maybe it has an advantage, but still... That's a much better opposite to this. I will say this is not a, a flop. Okay. Financially, this film made $174 million. I you mean aesthetically, think, you know? Yeah, okay, you mean creatively. Yeah. Yeah. So another example that of a film that did really well, but it did actually better critically as well as financially, mm-hmm. that I think is almost as superficial and, and problematic is Chicago from 2002 Mm, yeah i'm not a big fan of rob marshall who directed that and he's directed other musicals since i think he did into the woods and that would be a good comparison to me but even chicago slightly better than this film and what was your last question length uh this film is an hour 45 minutes do you think that's too short to i mean i know you talked about a lot of problematic areas yeah but do you think it's too short? Look, to I don't allow? think that a film has to be bloated. I don't think it has okay. to be two and a half hours. But fifteen minutes to be able to do, to have some character development would have been nice, at the very least. Not to mention the historical issues. But yeah, does that does that answer your questions? Yeah. Cool. So let's move on because I have other movies I saw. Let's move on to quiz show. So, in research for 1994 movies, I rewatched this little film directed by Robert Redford about a fraudulent quiz show in the late 1950s. It stars John Turturro, Rob Morrow, Ray Fiennes, and a very young and fairly fresh-faced Ray Fiennes in his like third year of starring in films. Oh yes, I got to see his face. Yes, that was so strange for me. Yes. It was an interesting time because he had did Schindler's List the previous year, the quiz show, and then the next year he was going to be in an English patient. Mm. David Paymer's in this, Hank Azaria, Chris McDonald. Those are the main players. <gasps> Hank, in this film. I love yeah, him. Yeah, yeah. So I was curious to see, because uh, it's been probably since it first came out on video, since I've seen this film, how well the film holds up. If it's better, it's like this overlooked gem or what have you. It's a fine film. It's good. I would not say, given everything else that came out in 1994, it was one of the best films, or not necessarily even one of the best Robert Redford-directed films. But one thing I will note about the film is how many blink-and-you'll-miss-it appearances 
are in this film. It's insane. You have Ethan Hawke, uh, literally in a blink and you'll miss it, appearance. William Fickner. Callista Flockhart makes an appearance way before L.A. McBeal. Ileana Douglas is in this. Jeffrey Nordlane. Barry Levinson. Ernie Sabella. Martin Scorsese, by the way, in one of his few acting gigs where he has more than one scene, he plays a sponsor in the film. And I was actually very impressed with his performance in, in the film because you don't get to see Martin Scorsese quote-unquote act much. So that was kind of cool. Timothy Busfield makes an appearance. Ben Shankman. Just so many people. Griffin Dunn. Hey, Martin, would you mind popping in? Yeah, I kind of <laughs> wonder like how a lot of these people like did how all this happened and and how all these people kind of came together is it kind of like, like a one if, day if robert calls you you answer i guess <laughs> i wouldn't be surprised okay uh, one quick note i will make about this film is rob morrow who starred in northern exposure up until like around the time of this uh, movie was released he actually gives a very very fine performance as the guy who's investigating the quiz show mm-hmm. i was very impressed with him and it made me actually wish he had more of a film career than he ended up having. He ended up having more of a TV career. He was in a TV show called Numbers for a number of years. No pun intended. Oh, I, I know that show. It, it had really good moments and it, it had really sucky moments, that Did one. It? Yeah. I mean, it, the first season is always very interesting when you come up with a new criminal concept. Yeah. And then it, I don't know, it just felt really weird after the first season. Gotcha. So yeah, Quiz Show's alright. A fine film. That's pretty much what it is. Worth checking out for all these different performances in it. The next movie I saw was The Meg, which is, of course, famously Jason Statham versus giant prehistoric So shark. did the dog die. <laughs> I need so, to know. Shanna is referring to... The little the cute trailer. Yorkie oh, let me, that let me jumped explain. in the ocean. Yeah, Because they thought that would be a good idea. In the trailer... <laughs> You see a Yorkie jump off a boat or whatever and be paddling in the, in the water. and Minding its, its own business. Its fate is left uncertain. In Enjoying the life. So here's the thing. Uh, I'll just get this out of the way really quickly. I don't think it's a movie that you would be able to handle watching. Whether or not the dog dies. So the dog dies, guys. I'm not there saying we go. that. I'm not saying that. I need to know. The movie plays with it. That's all I can say. I need to know if the dog dies and or not. you would not be able to handle it. Does it die or not? Does it die? Is the dog going to die? Oh my God, woman. <laughs> no. All right. Thank you, Jesus. But it plays with it. I was trying not to spoil it. No, no. It, people need to know. Yeah. Well, at any rate, you would not be able to handle it because of how it plays with it. More importantly, trying to get to the, the main crux of the film. Oh, please, that is the it's main directed, crux. It's directed by John Turtletop, who's director of Three Ninjas, National Treasure, and Sorcerer's Apprentice. That should give you an idea of what to expect going in here, folks. So fun. Um, it is. Now, it, this is interesting, though. This is based on a book by Steve Alton called Meg. And this film has been in development for probably 10, 15 years. I remember reading about Meg and it being on in, in development hell for a long time. So they finally made it. There are aspects I like about the movie, but I don't think it ultimately is all that good. It's fairly mediocre. The biggest problem with the movie is it looks like it's going to be B-movie schlocky fun. Jason Statham and his muscles 
going after <laughs> and a his 75 accent. foot megalodon. <laughs> Sounds awesome. The movie, unfortunately, t- takes itself a little too seriously and plays it too often as like a straight action film for it to be exactly what people are wanting and looking forward to. There's also a father-daughter relationship that gets shoehorned in the middle of the film, like actual like issues between them, and it just doesn't work. It just falls flat. It's like, why are you introducing this right now? This doesn't make... This just doesn't work. Uh, however... I liked Ruby Rose, Rain Wilson, and Bing Bing Lee in it, in addition to Jason Statham. I think those four in particular are the highlights of the movie. Rain Wilson, he plays a billionaire who's kind of like in charge, the one that's responsible for this entire um, oceanic expedition. Um, he's funding it. He's a character where if you think about it too much, his motivations like don't make sense. But... He thankfully doesn't necessarily play the stereotypical heartless billionaire that you know is going to die kind of thing. So I appreciated that about about him and his performance. Surprisingly, this movie is PG-13. And it, it does actually have a certain bloodless aspect to it. But a lot of innocent creatures and people do die <laughs> in the film. This... So, the Meg is ultimately not as fun a time as you would expect it to be, but it's okay. You know, um, I'd probably give it like a 5 out of 10 or something like that. Next, I saw Steven Soderbergh's Unsane, which stars Claire Foy from The Queen, which is not a series I have seen, but I think, Shanna, you've seen The Queen? Oh, yes. The Crown, The Crown, the, the sorry. The Crown, yeah. My bad. She's a, she's a <laughs> queen. She has a crown. So I equate the two. Are you a fan of that show? I go in and out with interest level. And I just think it's, you know, it's it's British. And it's fairly, the Brits are known for, you know, fairly dry kind of attitudes. Yeah. And so sometimes, you know, it's the kind of show where I can actually multitask. Okay. Because, you know, it's not very action driven. It's just, it's like dialogue heavy. And sometimes I look at it and I'm like, oh. Do you like it? I mean, I think it's very well done. Okay. Um, I like her. Okay. So she's good in it. Well, she stars in this film as a character who accidentally gets committed, essentially. Oh. Which sounds like an interesting premise. You know, Steven Soderbergh, he's a guy who said he was retiring. He retired for like three years. And then movies uh, like Logan Lucky somehow, for whatever reason, which was a fine, fun film, brought him out of retirement and now Unsane did. Unsane is definitely a little more experimental. It feels like it was shot on an iPhone. I'd have to research that. Uh. I, I think that might actually be the case, but I'm not positive. This is a film that starts out as like, like psycho, a psychological thriller of what would you do if all of a sudden you're being committed and you couldn't talk your way out of it. People were not listening to you. They were telling you to do what they are asking you to do or else it'll get difficult for you. Like, what would you do kind of thing. Which is kind of interesting, but it devolves into a standard stalker thriller, which is not as interesting. And Josh Leonard plays the character who may or may not be a stalker. Josh Leonard, people may know from all the way back in Blair Witch Project and also Lynn Shelton's Hump Day. This is not Soderbergh's best, I think, because it devolves into something that's a little standard and uninteresting and disposes of anything that is remotely interesting 
I'm not a huge fan. Um, I won't say I'm a, a Steven Soderbergh fanboy to begin with. He's definitely one of the best directors of a, of a certain time, but I'm not a fan of everything he does. And Unsane is... Eh, I definitely like Logan Lucky more, for sure. It was much more successful at what it was doing than Unsane is. So, that is Unsane. Whew! Okay, so, Shannon, you and I have seen a few things recently. Yeah, why don't we talk about Food Network stars? Okay, I wasn't going to start there, but Well, okay. it's a shorter discussion, isn't okay. it? It can be, yes. Yeah. Um, uh, so, Food Network star, which is hosted by Giada, what's her last name? No, I have no idea. I just know her as G. Okay. So, <laughs> Giada and who's the co-host? Bobby Flay. Bobby Flay. Mm-hmm. Sure, you know his last name. But <laughs> he has like three or four shows. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's, you know? he's in a lot. And I think Lady really likes his show because often there is meat sizzling. Mm. So, yeah. So they host, they're basically looking for the next star of a Food Network TV show. Yeah. 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 It's a reality show. Yeah, it's a you competition. Know? I got into it like halfway through, I guess, because there's about six people when I started. I had no idea. There was all these other people who got already eliminated when I started watching <laughs> it. And, and people keep coming in and out that have been eliminated, which is really weird for me to see. You know, it's not like on Jeopardy, all of a sudden, someone who got eliminated five weeks ago is coming back to, to try to beat the champion or have another chance, you know? So that was kind of confusing, but interesting to see. What are your thoughts on the Food Network star this season? Apparently it's 11th season? Yeah. So this is the first time I started watching it. And I was really fascinated with it Uh because what I had stumbled upon was, okay, people from previous seasons had an opportunity to be put into the 11th season. And so they had this kind of in-between show or this bonus show where it was a competition and it was just the same, people getting eliminated each week or each episode. And that was really cool. I like when mm-hmm. a show allows a second chance and not out of nowhere. Yeah. And she got so far, it was so was exciting. Um, Tom? Is that right? The blonde one. Oh, no, someone else. Okay, I thought you were talking about the Asian uh, woman. Oh, you mean the the woman that writes about food? Yes. Yeah. Yes, the food novelist, yes. Yes. I thought you were talking about her. That's such a you're, fancy title, see, by the way. The you're talking about somebody else who yeah. had the same similar situation. Yeah. So, I mean, I really enjoyed it. I thought the, the, the last four contestants were amazing. I was rather disappointed at who did not win. I was so upset. But... Here's the thing, like if he starts, if he has a blog, if he has a channel of his own, I'm like, I'm going to go watch that, you know, because he yeah. makes me so happy. So you're, you're talking about Manny. Manny's the best. Um, Hashtag Manny should have won. So here's the thing. I actually found myself getting really, I usually don't care about these things, but I found myself yeah. getting really invested with these people. You know, who's the weakest one? Who didn't do as good a job? Who, who did equally good but both had issues and who did stellar and all that, right? So I actually really ended up liking a lot the cast of, like, there was about six, I think, that um, I was watching for quite a while. Mm. And I was very disappointed that my two favorites, I love Amy and Manny and Christian, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I was very disappointed that Amy and Manny got eliminated. 
Mm-hmm. I think Christian is great. I really do. I think he easily should have been in the top three. Yeah. Manny, though, I was calling it in the last episode. I was like, dude, Manny's total Man, Food Network star. he nailed it, yeah. Like, this guy, like... I want to see him all the he's time. He's got right? Yeah. He's, he, is, he has star... He has everything. And for some reason, he got eliminated and they had a tie between the other two. I was so was pissed. And I think her name is Lauren Tong. And I thought Lauren Tom was actually the weakest one because she really had a hard time letting go. She was... There's something... Blocking her? There's something very ingen- disingenuous about her. Well, she just made things clinical because, you know, yeah. I guess being a novelist, that maybe influenced that. Whereas, like, if Manny was talking about food, he was just so passionate and excited. Yes. Yes. And that's what I want. Yes. I Like, there's enough stars on the Food Network channel that are neutral and, you know, grounded. Energy. And, yeah, I, I need someone with energy. Yeah. It doesn't all have to be... Who's the guy that lady was watching yesterday with the blonde hair? I don't know. Guys? Guys dinner drives. Oh, guy, Thank uh, you. Guy Feral, is it Guy Feraldi or something like that? I'm not that familiar. The one that also has like six shows. Anyway. So I I wanted a Manny to yeah, watch. Yeah. I, I didn't want, you yeah. know. Lauren so would Tom. you watch another season of this series? Oh yeah, because what's fun about it is what this show does really well is show people with their personal blocks that is yeah. preventing them from getting to the next level. And that is something that anyone can relate to, but especially an entrepreneur. Yeah. I feel that you're just, you know, you're so aware, acutely aware of what's blocking you or yeah. that you are being blocked. And so this is helpful because you see most of the time people are overcoming those blocks. Right. And I don't feel like it's a superficial show at all. I feel like they do a pretty good job being genuine. At least when you, you know, certainly when you get halfway through. Because when you're halfway through, those are the people that really, really want it. Yeah. And they they clearly want everybody there to to succeed too. I wish Amy the best. I, I love Amy. And I wish Manny the best. I really hope we see them again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but that is the Food Network stars. The next thing we watched was the Watchmen director's cut maximum movie mode. Now, Holy shit, guys. Please watch this during the day. Well, first of all, uh, <laughs> we're not going to get into it's so the long. movie itself, Watchmen. Well, I'm just saying. Uh, our opinions on the movie itself, Watchmen. That's, uh, that's a, we're going to talk about the actual maximum movie mode. It is long. It is like a th- three-hour movie made into four hours because there's so much this thing unpacks so essentially this is the director's commentary with Zack snyder hosting yeah yes and and it's widely considered one of the best ever because what does he do he does a picture-in-picture experience where he will pause the film and you'll see him on camera on a stage and he'll have one screen that's the movie you've been watching and another screen behind him that shows you something that he wants to point out, which is really fucking cool in itself. But then you have, while you're watching the movie, these other things that'll pop up, this PIP experience. You hit enter and you'll get this parenthetical three to five minute segment that'll talk about a particular aspect of the movie, which is really, really cool. 
And you also have opportunities to look through galleries if you if you so desire. We weren't really into that so much. Well, and I have all the books that they released, mm-hmm. you know, that was behind the scenes. And so I, I know all of that stuff by heart, really. Yeah. Because that was... They didn't release such a heavy special features DVD when it first came to DVD. As far right. as... Well, it didn't hit right. South Africa. So I grabbed anything I could that was related to it mm-hmm. and absorbed the information that way. But all that stuff that is, there's a couple things that are in those books that is in that commentary. Okay. So it's really rich and full of layers and, yeah. oh, just, you know, if you look at Watchmen, it's really just such a beautiful master- masterpiece because there's, there's so much complexity to it. There's so much that was, you know, trying to be true to the comic book to the to the novel when you see how much work went into trying to be true Uh to this this i'm just going to say franchise you realize you know what one or two slip-ups from Zack snyder it's not that big a deal yeah well i think if anything it definitely demonstrates this is probably the most ambitious superhero film ever made even if oh it's not perfect but maximum movie mode on the director's cut blu-ray of Watchmen is definitely one you cannot miss if you're into commentaries at all next we watched Wonderstruck that's right now this is Todd Haynes 2017 film another movie that took us quite a while to catch up with it's about a girl in 1922 who is deaf and she's wandering around through New York. And then also in 1977, there's a boy who just became deaf who is on the hunt for his father, who he's never met, and he travels to New York. One is shot in digital black and white. One is shot in, in film and has a very like 1970s aesthetic to it. It also stars, uh, I should, it stars Julianne Moore uh, and Millicent Simmons, who made her debut. Some people would know her from A Quiet Place, came out a few months after. Shannon, what did you think of Wonderstruck? I thoroughly enjoyed this film. I thought it was beautiful. I, You guys know that I love black and white, and the black and white, the way it was shot was just... The black and white looked like cream to me. Mm. Like, I just want to get in there and, like, play with, you know, the monotones uh, scale. And everything looked really smooth. So you can tell it's digital black and white. It's certainly not film black and white because film black and white has a graininess Mm. to it. And also comes with a very strong contrast. Mm. But this was kind of the in-between and it was just really just so stunning to look at really pleasing so that's how i felt about the black and white and then the coloring i could tell was like they were making sure that you knew it was the 70s because not only was that with the particular film type they also enhanced the film that kind of film with different color choices on sets they made sure that you had your greens they had they made sure that you had your oranges to help the greens pop they made sure that people were wearing denim and yes you know that it's fashionable at the time Mm -hmm. but it was also a visual choice Mm -hmm. because 
the denim didn't look like denim how we see it with our own eyes mm. when you see it through that film it's a it's a very strong unique color Do so you think there's like some post-production color attempting happening oh probably i i wouldn't i wouldn't put it past them that they're just amplifying it just a tish uh, which was fine it wasn't it wasn't irritating anyway so i thought color wise it was a fascinating study and one thing that i could faulted for is when you switch to the color you know the the present it was too dark at times and I just feel like they needed just a little reflection just a little diffused reflection happening just so that we weren't losing everything yeah that was my biggest problem with the movie certain scenes you could certainly get away with that there's a scene where the, the, you know there's two boys they're getting to know each other they're becoming friends buddies they're mm-hmm. sharing yeah. secrets and that makes sense to me um, sort of except you can't see what's going on and that that constantly took me out of the, the movie I feel like I would have really enjoyed the movie a lot more if it wasn't so visually dark for like it was like two minutes at a time at times I disagree with that scene being hard to see. I felt like the scene that was very difficult to see was when they were running around in the public part of the museum. Where, mm-hmm. you know what, I, I've been in a lot of museums and they don't get pitch black, yeah. uh, which unfortunately was the case with the film. Um, something that might have balanced it is if you had really dark scenes in the black and white because it's jumping back and forth and the thing with the black and white part of the film is everything is fairly, it's lit fairly well. Mm. There aren't very dark, there aren't even silhouettes, if I recall correctly. Um, so there isn't a lot of play with black and white, but they're certainly playing with the color part, lighting-wise. So that's, you know, a really fun film to study for, for those reasons. But story-wise, I really enjoyed the back and forth yeah. and the parallels that were running between the two storylines. And I really love seeing Julianne Moore. I, I think she's a really great actress, no yeah. matter what her role is. Right. There were a couple parts where I was like, oh, this is what's going to happen, and this is what's actually happening, and it wasn't. So I was surprised. Hmm. So that was exciting. I think we're not really big Todd Haynes fans. We were one of the few people who didn't like Carol a couple years back very much. I've just never really gotten into his films in the past. I think this is the closest I would have to been to actually really enjoying one of his films. And unfortunately, the scenes that were all dark were too frequent. It happened too many times for me to really fully enjoy and love this movie as much as I think I could have. Because I just could not see what was going on. And it really took me out of the movie. uh, Which was very unfortunate. That said, what is visible is very beautiful. Mm. And uh, credit must absolutely go to Carter Burwell's score. Which was hands down one of the best scores I heard last year. I don't know. I don't think it got much attention. But it really should have. Because it was really what was, especially in the black and white sequences, driving the story forward. And it was magnificent. I love the score to Wonderstruck by Carl Burwell. And I liked 
the film, but I really wish I was able to and allowed to love the film. So that's Wonderstruck. Now, we were going to have a main event. It was going to be a review of one of a few films, Crazy Rich Asians, Eighth Grade, Black Klansman. Black Klansman. We were trying to sort that out. But the thing is, aside from our own personal schedules, we kept running into an issue with MoviePass. Now, we talked a little bit about MoviePass in the previous episode. And since we talked about it, they have made changes to where now you get to watch three movies a month for the $9.99 monthly fee. And theoretically, you could watch any movie. Just three movies a month. I don't think the 3D or IMAX were, were allowed still. But then, after announcing that, they decided you're going to have up to six movies to choose from each day. And we're going to schedule up to ten days in advance what movies we're going to support on a day-to-day basis. So that got a little screwy. The thing is, while the website, let's take for example August 19th, it lists six movies. Crazy Rich Asians, Black Klansman, The Miseducation of Cameron Post, We the Animals, Gate Kitchen, Juliet Naked, and Summer of 84. Oh, Juliet Naked. Yeah, however, Mm -hmm. when I open my app, the only ones that are available are Crazy Rich Asians and Black Klansman. And sometimes you will plan your day in the morning and then the app will change halfway through the morning and a movie you're planning on watching will no longer be available to watch. But what we've been experiencing is only two movies are available a day. Sometimes only one movie. I think that's why I ended up watching The Meg because that was the only movie that was available on that particular day. So very frustrating. Apparently, this is how it's going to be for right now. I gather it's one of their ways of help mitigating the costs that they've run up by limiting, okay, you can't watch any movie on any particular day, so this will help slow down people running into the theater and how often they're running into the theater. Um, I thought the three movies a month was a fairly good middle ground thing, but the, the limited availability of movies is a little screwy and it's going to make it very difficult for us to plan our episodes in the future too Mm. do you have any thoughts about the uh experience that we've had this past uh, couple weeks it's been a very frustrating experience of course it inconsistency from a company is extremely excruciating for me Mm. because my my work schedule is is I'm grateful for it, but it isn't consistent. Yeah. It's it's kind of all over the place right now with the season that we're having. And I need to be able to plan. And so having the cinemas close to us show us that there's six options or three options or whatever options yeah. one day and then not at all the next day right. is incredibly frustrating. Right. It's like being a kid and your parents says, oh, we can have ice cream after dinner and then you don't get ice cream. That's very infuriating. Uh, Something that I noticed while I was staying in Seattle this week, though, there's quite a few cinemas near me where I work and two of the cinemas weren't even available for MoviePass. 
They didn't even have anything. So that was frustrating. I don't know if previously they've had movies available with Movie Pass, but like, what's the point? It's really frustrating at this stage because. Well, here's the thing. I'm okay with paying or using Movie Pass for three movies a month and paying for one or two movies a month on top of that. And they do have actually a reimbursement option too, where they can reimburse you like $5 or something like that off of an, a fourth film that you uh, do. And that's totally cool. That's not what I have a problem with. And the problem is, like, I don't know where I'm at with the movie pass right now. I, I don't know what it can give me because it's not giving me anything right now. Mm. I don't feel that strongly. I feel like it's complicated now. We have to go to the website in order to plan out things. But I'm also looking at, like, well, here's the thing. We only have Regal, and we have a, a Cinemark in our area. Those are the only two movie theaters we have in our area. We do have a art house movie theater that plays, like, maybe an indie that comes by that didn't play in the big theaters. But largely, it's the Regal or the Cinemark, and that's it. What we're going to have to do is, especially since we're getting into our award season, and when we go, go into our fall movie preview, which will be the next episode, we'll see there's a lot of movies that we want to catch up with in the next couple of months. So bear with us as we try to navigate and plan. Sometimes we'll probably have a plan, and we'll have, we might have to change that plan, but we'll try to keep you posted. As far as MoviePass and my relationship with MoviePass is concerned, because we only have Regal and Cinemark, there's not really any good alternative movie programs available. I'm not really into the Cinemark program. Yeah, and we talked about that in a previous yeah. episode. So there's not much else really uh, help cut down on costs and make these things more affordable. So, but... We did want to spend a couple more minutes talking about our experience with MoviePass and why we ended up not having a main review. It just <laughs> flat out didn't work out uh, between our scheduling and what MoviePass schedules as well. All right, and now it's time for Film Faves. For those who are new, Film Faves is not intended as an objective best of list. Instead, think of it as an unabashedly subjective expression of our movie geek love. Many lists stop at 10, with some honorable mentions thrown in afterward. Film Faves is a list of 12 movies or related items. No honorable mentions. We intend to explore many different film topics with Film Faves, but primarily we focus on marching through time. Taking a look at each year and counting down our favorite films of every year. Let's get on with it, shall we? This time we look at 1994. The year 1994 was a great year for movies. There are several things worth noting about the movies of 1994. In the foreign film market, Il Postino, Eat and Drink, Man, Woman, and Kieslowski's Red and White garnered most of the critical and commercial attention. The documentary of the year was Hoop Dreams, the three-hour chronicle of inner-city high schoolers who dream of becoming the next Michael Jordan. No documentary would gain such popularity for nearly a decade. However, Hoop Dreams was not nominated for Best Documentary in the Academy Awards. There were a couple of notable debuts in 1994. Cameron Diaz in The Mask, Natalie Portman in Leon, and Kate Winslet in Heavenly Creatures. Also, 
Dakota Fanning, Justin Bieber, and Saoirse Ronan were all born that year. Several comedies reigned supreme at the box office, including The Mask, Dumb and Dumber, Four Weddings and a Funeral, and The Dumb as a Rock, The Flintstones. Other than, <laughs> which I remember looking forward to. That's really funny, and, and it also feels true because anyone that grew up watching Flintstones must have been offended by that. <laughs> I hope so. Other notable comedies include Naked Gun 33 and a Third, The Final Insult, Bullets Over Broadway, and The Santa Claus, and of course, Clerks, Kevin Smith's debut. Other movies of note include The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, The Last Seduction, Legends of the Fall, Natural Born Killers, The Paper, Quiz Show, Reality Bites, Serial Mom, Time Cop, and Wes Craven's New Nightmare. Then there was The CAC, the worst of the year. Remember these screen gems? Bad Girls, Cabin Boy, Camp Nowhere, The Chase, City Slickers 2, The Legend of Curly's Gold, Clean Slate, Clear and Present Danger, Exit to Eden, Getting Even with Dad, I Love Trouble, It's Pat, Lightning Jack, The Next Karate Kid, North, On Deadly Ground, The Page Master, Renaissance Man, Richie Rich, The Specialist, and Raul Julia's final film, <sighs> Street Fighter. <laughs> But Shanna, why don't you get us started with your number 12 favorite film. My number 12 favorite film is a sentimental one. It is The Swan Princess. IMDb describes it as a power-hungry sorcerer transforms a princess into a swan by day in this tale of everlasting love. Essentially, he's trying to get Odette, the swan princess, to marry him so that he will have control of the kingdom but it has to be out of her free will, even though he imprisons her. So there's a couple of interesting things. It's interesting. The reason I like this film so much is it has a lot of really cute animated moments, how they've they've played with the characters. It also has a puffin, which I just realized (laughs) this past week and a half that I actually really adore puffins. (laughs) So that could have something to do with it. But it's really silly and really cute at the same time. My favorite line from this movie is, you should write a book, how to offend women in five syllables or less. So there's a couple good moments in here. And, you know, it's about loving someone beyond the surface. So it is available to watch on Hulu. Uh, Also, it has a lot of fun songs. It's just, it's really fun and goofy. And you're saying that you also really love her hair, too. I, I do like her hair. I feel like her hair was like an inspiration for Tangled. <laughs> like, I feel like her hair is better than Disney princess hair. Very cool. Well, so for my list, I had to leave off Interview with a Vampire, which we talked about in the previous episode. And if you heard that episode, you know my apparent love of that movie. But I didn't want to repeat myself, so obviously that would be on my list. But because it's not on my list, what did squeak in at number 12 was The Crow by Alex Proyas, who of course made one of my favorite movies of 1998, Dark City, I talked about in that episode, starring Brandon Lee, Bruce Lee's son, who tragically died during production of this film. Mm. This was pretty much the epitome of 90s cool and 90s badassery and dark and edgy. You know, it was a R-rated 
superhero movie based on a very underground like indie comic that not very many comic fans even knew about necessarily mm-hmm. but of course know about now because of this movie I just really enjoy this movie. Uh, I think it's probably aged a little bit, and it's not as high on my list now as it would have been in the 90s, but it's a very, very cool film, and I think there's a reason why they never were able to make another Crow film as good as this one. So that's The Crow, and it is the only film on my list that is available to stream on any of our platforms that we support uh, this time it is Amazon Prime. My number 11 is Stargate. This this film kind of, I mean, it's pretty hard to describe if this was not your first exposure to Stargate because it just opened up this huge world of like three different TV shows. There was Stargate Atlantis, there was... Mm. Stargate New, whatever that occurred <laughs> in the first decade of this, this century. Yeah. yeah, and then there was another one. I never got into that. And so my brother watched them constantly and, you know, it was just it was just huge. And then when I found out, when he told me there was a movie, I was like, oh, well, you know, who's in it? And he said James Spader. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, shut up. You don't have to say anything else. Yeah, this is where it all came from. <laughs> yeah. So the, this movie... You know, there's an interstellar teleportation device and that opens up to all different different planets. And it just so happens that in this film they find a planet that seems to have, it looks like humans and they seem Egyptian and things occur and stuff. <laughs> James Spader. <laughs> and Kurt Russell though. Oh yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he was a badass. Uh, and that's that came from the directors of Independence Day, uh, two years later. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have much to say about this other than you know I have an appreciation for it because of everything it created. I feel like if a movie can do that, uh, or yeah, you sure. know, I feel like you must be doing something right. <laughs> My number eleven is With Honors. Once in a while, my taste in nineties films will dip into what many consider to be a subpar melodrama just a notch above lifetime tv movie schmaltz i believe this film starring brendan fraser and joe pesci would count among those films but i still enjoy it quite a bit the ensemble which also includes mara kelly patrick dempsey and josh hamilton simultaneously gelled together and stood apart the story is adequately told and avoids reigning false The third act drama, which touches on mortality, regret, and the sum of one's life, was adequately moving without feeling forced. For those who aren't aware, With Honors is about a Harvard student, played by Brendan Fraser, who loses his senior thesis to a bum, Joe Pesci. That bum makes a deal to return a page of the thesis per charitable gesture given to him. One thing leads to another, and the student and bum develop a friendship as they learn more about each other, each teaching the other lessons in life. I won't go so far as to say these are the best performances by Fraser and Pesci, but they are very good and help carry the film. Also, Patrick Dempsey was rarely seen during the 90s, and his performance in this film is a treat. Oh. Are you a Patrick Dempsey fan? Uh, I don't know that I could say that because he was kind of big in the 80s at first, and I'm not a big fan of Can't Buy You Love and other movies like that. And then, like, I'm not a Grey's Anatomy fan. 
So yes, that's why he, I'm asking. Yeah, I would say he's like someone who like is a nice surprise in a movie when he shows up. Mm. I like him in Scream Three. Oh, okay. Wow, I didn't know he was there. Yeah. <laughs> so my number ten is True Lies, and it stars Arnold Schwarzenegger, Jamie Lee Curtis, my absolutely favorite, uh, Eliza Dushku, oh, yeah. Bill Paxton, Tom Arnold, and a couple other people. So this is a film about. <laughs> what happens when you are a spy tracking down uh, nuclear missiles and you discover that your wife is considering having an affair with someone who is a salesman but pretending to be a spy and what I didn't mention is that Arnold Schwarzenegger is pretending to be a salesman and is a spy so it's like she's kind of at least he can rely on her pattern you know she's mm. kind of falling for the same what seems that to be the same guy yeah, and so he has to not only you know everything falls apart at the same time not only does he have to save his marriage because that's what good men do um he also has to save the day yeah save the day fight the islamic jihadist and you know that's responsible for the the nuclearness the so. nuclearness. <laughs> so, you know, not hard work at all. And there's a wonderful action scene at the end of it. Uh, there's a lot of wonderful action. Yes, but I'm, I'm talking scene. particularly about the one with the helicopter. Do you mean the jet? Oh, yeah, that thing. <laughs> <laughs> we may hear more about True Lies. My next film, number 10, is Forrest Gump. Forrest... Oh, really? Yes. It's so low. Well, that might be because I probably got burned out of it. It was probably the most popular movie of that year, let's say. And I don't know, the populism of it and the populist nature of the film probably has kind of lowered it down on my, my list. But it is a really good film. That statement saying Forrest Gump is a really good film may come as common knowledge, but I think it may be a bit controversial. The AFI once named Forrest Gump among the 100 greatest films ever made. The Academy of Motion Picture Sciences named Forrest Gump the best picture of its year. I respectfully disagree with them both. Sure, Gump was one of the best films of 1994, and one could place it among the greatest films ever made, but it was not the best film of 1994, and it certainly would be in better company between the 200th and 500th best films ever made not the top 100. Gump took top honors at the Oscars, proving once again that sometimes popularity beats out quality. That said, I ball my eyes out when I watch this film. The cast is magnificent, and the way in which Gump is weaved within the fabric of American history is far more poignant than in Winston Groom's comedic novel, which I've actually read. I remember how much of a phenomenon this film was, Lines stretched to parking lots in a way typically witnessed only with genre films like Star Wars. The only thing about Gump that hasn't aged too well is what made it revolutionary. The archive footage looks completely fake now, especially where people's mouths are manipulated. Cinephiles will note the appearance of a tiny Haley Joel Osment during the final act. I noticed that. Very good. <laughs> High five to you. Yeah. What's your next film? So, my next film is Leon, The Professional. It's my next film. What? Okay, so I'm going to talk first. Okay. So, I wish I had been paying more attention to this film when we made our list about 
kick-ass female heroines, female characters. Okay. Okay. Because Matilda's pretty fucking cool. Okay. So she's this 12-year-old girl and her, you know, she has a horrible family and yeah. her family is murdered. Right. And so she, uh, Leon comes to her and finds her yeah he's the assassin he didn't assassinate her family no something else happened there that you can find out later leon is reluctantly helping her become an assassin Mm -hmm. so that she can take revenge on her family and i think that that's freaking killer really badass (laughs) so cool it's kind of like uh what would happen If, like, Uma Thurman was a little girl in Kill Bill, you know, like... Oh, it's kind of like what happened with Lucy Liu's character. Sort of. Somewhat. Yeah. Okay, I, I understand it. It's like, we could introduce this to, like, a f- like maybe a 14-year-old? I, yeah, I don't think it's... I, I don't think it's ultra-violent or anything, yeah. though it is rated R. And then we graduate to Kill Bill <laughs> later. Well, I think it's a film that has borne many cardboard copies that this film's characters are not one-dimensional and its morality beyond one note makes it the intriguing film it is it's a shame jean renault's career afterward never quite afforded him the kind of quality of portman's or oldman's but at least he can say he starred in luc besson's best film which i do think leon also known as in the states the professional is uh, for more of my thoughts on this film, I do have a review back in my archives of the Gibson Review. I'll try to link to in the show notes. Shannon, what is your next film? My next film is The Santa Claus. Oh, really? It, I it's like one, one of my favorite Christmas movies. Yeah. I don't think it's my ultimate favorite. I think it's in my top three. Okay, okay, okay. And so, of course, it stars Tim Allen as Santa Claus, which I think he's a perfect Santa Claus. Mm-hmm. I think it works for him. Mm-hmm. And then Eric Lloyd is his son, which I was like, oh, my God, that's Eric Lloyd. Um, and a couple of other fun people like Peter Boyle, John pa- uh, John Paskin. It, well, you see him briefly, so, oh, you know, go okay. check that out. But, you know, it's just a story. It's just a fun take on, you know, how does Santa Claus live forever? Well, this is how it happens. Mm-hmm. And there's lots of magical moments and there's lots of disbelief certain things occur that make you a believer again of uh, Christmas and of Santa Claus and of all the magic that can happen. And it's just, it's, it's really well done. It's a favorite. If I recall, it is probably one of the best live action Disney films of the nineties, but it's been a long time since I've seen it. Would you say it's the best Santa Claus movie? Yeah, but I get a kick out of number two. Oh yeah. Yeah. Because it's kind of it's kind of cutesy. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. My number uh, my number eight film is Maverick, the oh with Mel Gibson Western comedy. Mm. Yes, based on the TV show from the '60s, I believe, starring James Gardner, Mel Gibson, James Coburn, and Jodie Foster primarily. This movie, I think, is one of the five best movies based on a tv show it is hilarious i think jodie foster gives her best comedic performance of her career uh she's silly and sexy at the same time and i rarely can characterize jodie foster in that way Uh, mel gibson is absolutely charming and hilarious and it's just a good fun having james garner who was the original maverick 
star in this film as well. I can't, I'm blanking on who directed the film. I can't remember if it was Barry Levinson or who, or, or who but uh, I enjoyed, oh, it was Richard Donner. Richard Donner, who did the we- Lethal Weapon series and Superman, of course. Oh. Great fun. Maybe one of Richard Donner's last great films. Shannon, what's your next favorite film? My next favorite film is like one of my childhood favorites. It's Ace Ventura Pet Detective. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. So much fun. Okay. So as a South African watching this film, you get one interpretation when you're a kid. And then when you come and you live in America for a while, you have an entirely different view on this film. In this film, you have Jim Carrey starring as Ace Ventura, the pet detective. He is known for finding missing animals. I mean, in the most bizarre kind of circumstances, like a missing bird, people, that hasn't had its wings clipped. That man will find it. It's just, it's insane and funny to watch. He's really goofy. He has misadventures all the time when he's getting to his point. And in this movie, it turns out that the mascot of the Miami Dolphins is missing. So the dolph- the actual dolphin is missing. And it's for the NFL team. And I'm like, I didn't know what football was. I So oh. not only was this film crazy for me to watch because of whatever Ace Ventura was doing, right. but it was also crazy for me to watch because I was like, well, what the hell is this thing? That yeah. what, what are these people doing? Why are they dressing up? Right. So a lot of confusion when I was younger and even up to 18. Um, because like I just didn't get it. But I think my absolute favorite part of this film, because it's in all the gifs and all the memes that make sense to my life, is when Ace Ventura is, you know, trying to get admitted to a mental... um, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Is it a mental facility? And he's got a tutu on, and he's got a white shirt, and he's got, like, his, his, like... uh, His normal outfit. His normal outfit underneath, and crazy pants. And ginormous shoes, but then his hair is crazy in a different way, and the tutu. And he's just like acting crazy and he's banging on things, and then he's very loud and doing like this law kind of thing, and he's just carrying on. He's and then he's supposedly he's being himself, (laughs) like football That's games right. from his past or whatever and he's acting in out. moments of like slow motion yeah, yeah. rewind yeah. and all of a sudden he slams his head down on this like case oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. the loudest noise and the doctor is talking to courtney cox who's pretending to be his sister to have him admitted right. <laughs> he just looks at him and it's like it's normal here you know (laughs) it's just really great it makes me so happy and now they've taken that and turned it into memes and gifs that are totally appropriate like this is what every friday looks like to me by the end of the week or whatever it's just it brings me a lot of happiness that picture what no okay no that sounds fun was it was it any good was it jim carrey's voice I don't recall mm. that. I doubt it, but it was it was kind of fun too. You might enjoy mm. that. Uh, we're at the halfway point now already. My next film is The Hudsucker Proxy. That sounds really gross. Oh, you would enjoy it. I have loved The Hudsucker Proxy ever since I saw it on cable when I was 14. It has remained one of my favorite Coen Brothers movies since, although True Grit and Fargo is up there as well. 
1958. Just as Warren Hudsucker, played by Charles Durning, founder of Hudsucker Industries, plummets from the top floor, Noraville Barnes, played by Tim Robbins, wanders into the first floor. By chance, Barnes becomes the unwitting pawn of a corporate scheme of the stockholders, led by a gruff Paul Newman, to buy out the company and take total control. However, Barnes has an idea up his sleeve, you know, for kids. That incidentally becomes a huge success, keeping Hudsucker's stock soaring. There are about a hundred things I love about this movie. The circular motif, Bill Cobb's narration, the score by Carter Burwell, he of the score of every Coen Brothers movie, the way the dialogue pops, and Jennifer Jason Lee's performance as a tough-talking gal Friday who is skeptical about Barnes and later falls for him. One of my favorite Jennifer Jason Lee's performances. The Hudsucker Proxy is one of the Coen Brothers' most overlooked movies, which is a shame because it's also one of their most accessible. Check it out if you're unfamiliar with it. Well, you could have just said a Coen Brothers film and it would have been like, okay, yeah, I'll shut up, just show me the film. It is all one of the tougher to find. I, I rarely Do we have see that? It. I rarely oh, see it available to stream, that's too. That's so sad. What's your next film, love? My next film is Heavenly Creatures, directed by Peter Jackson. You showed me this film a couple of years ago, but mm-hmm. I never remember. I never put it together with the name, uh. ever, because the name just doesn't make sense to me. Mm-hmm. So this stars Melanie Linsky, yeah. Linsky Kate Winslet, Sarah Pierce, and Diana Kent. And mostly those first two. Well, yes, because <laughs> it's about their friendship. Yeah. And, you know, they're teenagers at this point, and they have a very strange bond. Well, it's not strange. It's just... It's very strange, love. It's, it's very okay, strange. Okay, it's strange. We're just going to go with strange. Yeah. It's a strange bond. And the parents start figuring out, oh, this is getting unhealthy. And so they try to separate them, and that's a really right. bad idea because their imaginations take over. Their make-believe stories and games really take a different turn mm-hmm. because they're feeling threatened, and revenge occurs. And it's a very... Oops shocking mm-hmm. film. It's taking place yeah. in Christian Church, New Zealand. Yeah, I was going to say, let's just say it's based on a true crime. Good crime movie, absolutely. Awesome. My next film is Speed. A city bus loaded with a dozen civilians has a bomb that will explode if it drops below 50 miles per hour. What do you do? Oh, I like that film. Action pitches don't get much simpler than that. Thankfully, this action film kept things simple, fun, and exciting without treating the audience like idiots. Keanu Reeves works well as the determined hotshot bomb specialist, and Dennis Hopper joins the love-to-hate-villainy pantheon. Sandra Bullock, who appeared as a naive cop a year before in Demolition Man, exploded with this movie, quickly becoming Julia Roberts' competition for romantic leading roles, such things as While You Were Sleeping. Unfortunately, director Jan de Bont and Bullock failed to yield and merged again for the ill-advised sequel, Speed 2, Cruise Control. Did you ever see that? I did. Yeah, it's pretty awful, wasn't it? I mean, I don't remember, but I never went back to it, so I assume it was. I remember looking forward to it so much, and it was such a... How old were you when that came out? Uh, Speed 2? Yeah. I think 16 or 17. Oh. And Speed, of course, I was... You must have been so pumped and then just totally destroyed afterwards. Oh, yeah, yeah. But Speed also has one of the best trailers, too, of an action film. It's very well cut together. You should check that out as as well as the film. My next film is Pulp Fiction. Really? Quentin Tarantino. Hello, okay. 
you put Forrest Gump pretty low there yourself. So <laughs> now the best, this is, a, you know, Quentin Tarantino's films are very complex. You know, they have a lot of storylines being woven together when he takes on a few different char- main characters. Yeah. I feel like Django Unchained is an exception. Mm. So the lives of two mob hitmen, a boxer, a gangster's wife, and a pair of dinner bandits intertwine in four tales of violence and redemption. <laughs> this has got Samuel L. Jackson. He does him more. Tim Roth. We've got John Travolta. We have Phil Lamar. We have Frank Wiley. We have Bruce Willis. <laughs> he was a surprise. I forget that he's in there all the time. Vin Rames. It's just the list goes on. It just sure. it just carries on. I mean, yeah. I'm looking at the and Uma Thurman, of course. One of your favorite Arquettes is on there too. Ah, yes. Anything that Samuel L. Jackson says is my favorite quote. So there we go. Lots of fun and hilarity ensues. Lots of references appear throughout. My number five film is True Lies. Arnold Schwarzenegger reunites with director James Cameron for this spy action comedy about the need to inject a little excitement in a marriage. True Lies is one of Schwarzenegger's more substantial flicks, balancing effectively the home life with the set-piece action scenes. A dose of humor is provided by all involved, especially Tom Arnold, who plays Harry's best bud and carpool partner. Cameron is usually remembered for his sci-fi epics and Titanic, but shows a lighter side to the notoriously strong-willed filmmaker. My number four is the client. It's beginning to look like this was a, this was an interesting crime year, mm. crime variety. You've got Leon, you've got Ace Ventura kind of counts. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> you got fiction. a bit of Pulp Fiction. You've got yeah. some heavenly creatures happening, yeah. and True Lies to some extent falls into that category. I guess, but tell but us about the client. anyway, the client. This is one of my favorite. It stars Susan Sarandon, Tommy Lee Jones, and... Brad Renfro, who has since de- deceased. Yes, and the, the... Yeah, that was the boy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was... He also starred in Ghost World a few years later. Well, and you've even... You even get to see, you know, our favorite from West Wing. Bradley Whitford, mm-hmm. yeah. And he's also in Get Out. You know, you'll see several other people. A young boy who witnessed the suicide of a mafia lawyer hires an attorney to protect him when the district attorney tries to use him to take down a mob family. So he has this boy. He's absolutely terrified. His brother and him witnessed this the suicide. They know what's going on. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the younger brother is just in so much shock. He's in hospital for days, weeks. And the older brother has to try and get, you know, get through this alive and so does susan sarandon and susan sarandon also has to this was maybe one of the first films i watched i was maybe 11 when i watched this maybe 12 and it was the first film i watched where i realized like women weren't automatically accepted into certain careers because she kind of has to fight for her career is this your favorite john grisham movie no no i'm pretty sure my favorite is a time to kill Oh, yes, that's right, that's right. That was your favorite You know, there's movie Matthew of... McConaughey, but there's also Samuel L. Jackson right, and Sandra Bullock. your favorite movie of 1996 also. Yes. I haven't seen The Client in a long time, so I would like to revisit that sometime. Let's do it. My next film, my fourth favorite film of 1994 is Ed Wood. Ed Wood is widely regarded as America's worst filmmaker ever. Often, his films are derided, ridiculed, and looked at as the crown jewels 
of So Bad It's Good Cinema. How incredible, then, that director Tim Burton made this man's story one of the most beautiful and endearing biopics ever to hit the screen. We are shown how Wood, as a man who just wanted to be accepted for who he was and had a passion for motion pictures, Wood grew up reading pulp magazines and watching genre films. He idolized Bela Lugosi and dreamed of creating something as great as Orson Welles' Citizen Kane. He had a predilection toward realism, yet could never earn a big enough budget to buy anything better than cardboard sets and cheap props. He was blinded by his visions, unwilling to accept many notes, yet deeply cut by negative reviews. He was the complete opposite end of the spectrum from Lugosi and Welles. Yet these are the things that make the film Ed Wood deeply fascinating. Johnny Depp may have earned Academy nods for playing Captain Jack Sparrow, but his best work is as Ed Wood. Depp disappears into the role and brings us Wood's passion, frustration, fears, determination, and desperation. Likewise, as forgotten screen legend Bella Lugosi, Martin Landau, who has since passed on, transforms himself into a dope-addicted animated old cuss whose career ended with his indebted friendship and collaboration with Ed Wood. Often, this is probably perceived as pathetic, given that Lugosi was once the iconic Dracula, that most powerful and enduring of Universal's classic monsters. Burton shows us the trust and faith behind that collaboration. Wood was Lugosi's only friend in the end. I have seen the films depicted here, and they're truly awful although I find Plan 9 from Outer Space way more tolerable than Glenn or Glenda. But Ed Wood is probably the best film of Burton's career and his last great film. I, I like, wasn't it shot in black and white? Yeah. I, I like that part. Uh-huh. That was pretty cool. They had good black and white. What's your third favorite film of 1994? The Shawshank Redemption. It's my third favorite film of 1994. Also. Are you kidding? Why is it your third favorite film? So this was it's sentimental because it's not a pleasant film. It's mm. a very well-made film. It's a very good film. It, yeah. I don't really see many flaws in it, if any. Uh-huh. But it's a very difficult film to watch. So sentimental okay. for the reason that this was the first film in high school that we did a film study on. Mm. And it was quite something because... <laughs> The poor teacher, the poor English teacher, got letters from parents saying how inappropriate this film was for the 17-year-olds to be watching. And the parents weren't wrong. You know, I feel that there's a lot of brutality in here. Mm -hmm. But the reason there's so much brutality in here is because it's showing the realism of what prison life is. Right. They're not doing brutal things for the sake of being brutal. Right. So if you ever, you know, and it totally changes your interpretation of prisoners. And I feel that's the kind of effect it had on me. Mm-hmm. This stars Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman. Yep. They form a really good relationship over the 19 years that, that Tim Robbins is in prison. And Tim Robbins goes through a variety of different experiences that one goes through in that kind of life. There, he's not. He's sentenced to prison for two life terms, which means he's not going to get out. Right. And it's because of he was accused and found guilty of the murder of his wife and her lover. Mm-hmm. Yep. But he knows that he didn't do it. Mm-hmm. And. But everyone's innocent in Shawshank. 
yeah, that's the thing. But then you get some people who do admit to what they did, like mm. they're kind of proud of it, or they're not. They've come to a point where they're not proud of it, right, you know. Right, right. So a very interesting film. It's the perfect film to study film. Hmm. Well, it may not only be the best Stephen King movie ever, but also the best prison movie ever. So rich is it, is it with theme and pathos. It's the kind of film that would make you sympathetic toward anyone doing hard time for murder, as you mm, intimated. I agree. Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman are two guys with the choice to get busy living or get busy dying in prison. Robbins proves himself wily enough to hold his own uh, in prison despite a few scrapes with some sociopaths. He befriends Red, played by Morgan Freeman, a man who keeps getting denied parole. What follows may be one of cinema's greatest romances, and I absolutely love the film. I actually saw it when I was uh, 14, about 15 years old, I think. Oh, I feel like that's too young. And I think it's actually one of the movies that should have been nominated for Best Picture that year. And it didn't get anything, right? No, it, it got overlooked. Mm. What is your second favorite film of 1994? My second favorite is Forrest Gump. Okay. Yeah. What is that? You know, I just found this to be a really interesting story. I unfortunately got exposed to all the references before I knew what the movie was. How much later did you see the movie? Uh, like when I hit 19. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I think the thing that I really enjoyed about this film was when I eventually did get to watch it, I understood enough about the world to crave context with any story that was taking place in a different you know, time. Doesn't this take place in like between the 60s and like 80s uh it ends was it like 70s much to in 80s, the 80s yeah. but it starts in the 50s okay so i feel like it's a really great film to watch because it's it's showing you know here's the story about tom hanks and his life but Not tom hanks about forrest sorry gump. about forrest gump played by tom hanks and here's what's happening in the world around him and it feels like that's a big part of the film it's not yeah. just about his story. It's about the context, like what else was happening. Okay, yeah. yeah. And even though it's, you know, as you said, it's it's like fake. It's like, it looks terrible it now. Fake is the newsreel footage that mm -hmm. he's inserted into, not everything else. Mm -hmm. I think it's really cute. Mm. <laughs> and I enjoy it. And I'm a fan of Tom Hanks. And Robin Wright is cool too. Very cool. My second favorite film of 1994 is The Lion King. During the late 80s and early 90s, Disney went through a creative explosion, a new golden age, and The Lion King was the culmination of that great period. I'll go so far as to say it was the best film from that era. The opening teaser alone is a perfect example of how much beauty traditional animation can behold. Combined with the opening number, The Circle of Life, and the title card appearing with a silencing boom, those three minutes are enough to give me chills. The rest of the film, modeled after Hamlet, thankfully lives up to that moment, grappling with daddy issues, responsibility, and friendship. The Lion King may have its cutesy sidekick characters, but it is the closest since Pinocchio that Disney Studios ever got to transcending the animation genre beyond kid stuff. Shanna, what is your favorite film 
1994. My number one film is The Lion King. It is your favorite film. It is my absolute favorite. There's so many lines in here that I love so much, and just the craziness is really fun. And I grew up in South Africa. I knew what it was like to live in South Africa. I knew what it was like to go on safari. I knew what it was like to get up close and personal with, well, not too personal, with these <laughs> incredible animals. I knew what they looked like. I knew what they, how they moved. I knew what the like, the light was like in South Africa. I knew what the sky was like, the earth. You know, it was a really well done film uh-huh. because it captured all of those things. It's realistic in, you know, you could tell that they had their research groups out, making sure that they were going to get the movement right of all the creatures, making sure that they were going to get patterns right, making sure they were going to get hierarchy right between all the animals. And it was just really great. It's just the best musical (laughs) i am still needing to see this on broadway my other favorite disney movie uh, like on broadway is beauty and the beast and i cried when you know two of my favorite numbers performed Uh and my goal is to see this on broadway as well because i feel like it's just such a rich fantastic film and i love how you know you're going to interpret it one way when you're a kid and then when you're an adult it's so much freaking better because i don't know how i missed this when i was a kid and growing up in my teenage years but that number that timon and pumba do to distract the hyenas when the hyenas have oh, not eaten yeah. mm-hmm. in who knows how long yeah and he's talking about come and get your hunky juicy bacon <laughs> <laughs> it's like because he's a pig and it's just really funny how that that humor unfolds and brings me so much joy awesome uh well obviously that is a great film my favorite film of 1994 however is pulp fiction quentin tarantino's sophomore effort not only has some of the best characters dialogue and structure ever put to film but like the lion king it also has one of the greatest opening title sequences A couple in a diner have a pseudo-intellectual discussion about crime, which crescendos to a stick-up with Amanda Plummer's threatening growl. Then that bass line kicks in and the title slowly crawls into view. A fantastic start to one of the decade's most influential films. Pulp Fiction helped the careers of everyone involved. John Travolta's career got a kick in the butt. Samuel L. Jackson became everyone's favorite badass. Uma Thurman became the cinephile's it girl, etc. It also started a trend of talky, violent crime films, and together with Kevin Smith's Clerks, revolutionized the indie film scene and made Miramax and the Weinsteins a force to be reckoned with. So that is why I also think Pulp Fiction is the best film of 1994. But what is your favorite film of 1994? Email us at thegibsonreview at gmail.com. Shanna, before we talk about next episode, where can people find you on the internet? You can find me on Instagram at Shanna underscore Paxton. S-H-A-N-N-A-P-A-X-T-O-N. Thank you so much. And you can go to thegibsonreview.com for more episodes, past articles, um, You can also go to the Facebook, the Gibson Review, uh, to find many reviews, third-party links, and links to these episodes. Go to SoundCloud and iTunes to subscribe to these episodes. And also, of course, 
go to uh, Flick Chart, the Gibson 99, to find me and my list of movies I have seen, theatrically released movies I've seen. The next episode, which I believe will release on September 3rd, if I'm not mistaken, yes, will be our fall movie preview. So we will be looking ahead at movies that we're looking forward to in September, October, November, which is a big piece of the award season as well. And looks like we might be counting down our favorite films of 1993. So that'll include A Creepy and Kooky Family, Chaos Theory, A One-Armed Man, and Tom Hanks getting sleepless in one city and on the streets of another. So that's the next time on The Movie Lovers. Until then, keep loving the movies. And this is Jeff and Shanna saying bye-bye.